This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Oladanji and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris. Hey, I'm Rod. I'm from Peru. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I'm Liki. Hi, I'm Olabanji. Okay, Olabanji. Uh, do you have a smartphone? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I do have a smartphone. Do you drive an electric car? Uh, no, I don't drive at all right now. Um, so have you ever heard about rare earth elements? Did you say rare earth? Yes, rare earth. Uh, well, sort of. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I've probably heard that it's all around us in devices here and there, but I, I can mistake that for plastic, to be honest. I, do, I really don't know. <laughs> so you want to tell me about rare earth? Well, I don't know anything about rare earth, neighbor, uh, but I know that it's a very important component of the energy transition. But that's mm. fine. If we don't know anything about rare earth, because today we have some amazing guests all the way from Australia joining us. We have George Watkins. And Max von Sommerin. Hi, Max and Stuart. Hello. How are you doing? You've heard a very dummy conversation about we don't know what rare earth is. So maybe we, we can start off by talking about, you can start talking about the net zero network and um, where, you know, where, how does it fit in the energy transition um, program in Australia? Yeah, sure. Um, I, will, I will jump in at that point, Licky. Um, and that will be a nice way to explain how I found out what rare earths were and how they fit into the energy transition. Um, the Net Zero Network is a, a group here in Perth in Western Australia, which was founded by me and a couple of others about two years ago, because we were reading about the importance of climate change and the potential changes that were going to be required in society and within the economy. But we weren't really sure how as individuals we could get involved to do more. We knew that there were small scale things that we could do, like saving energy around our own homes, but we didn't feel like that was enough. We wanted to use our professional skills to have more impact. Um, and I didn't know who to talk to about that. So a small group of us got together and we decided to form a group which would help each other to identify opportunities for get involved, to get involved and do more. Um, that led to us meeting regularly, uh, hearing from inspiring speakers who had made that transition themselves. And ultimately for me, it led me to move from the job which I was in, which was designing ships, uh, which was pretty interesting, but not directly related to decarbonization, to working with a, a large engineering company, KBR, helping companies like Arafura, who we'll hear from in a minute, uh, with their decarbonization strategies. Um, and um, the Net Zero Network has been fantastic for connecting to all sorts of people that have helped me understand what, that, what, what the options are for industry and society as a whole to decarbonize. So you came to the product without knowing anything about Rare Earth, Eber. 
almost. <laughs> it was, there was definitely a learning curve for me. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm an engineer by background and I bought experience in decarbonization technologies, uh, but uh, I didn't understand the rare earth domain. And, and I'd heard about them, I think, like most of us have in a passing sense, but I wasn't really sure exactly what role they played in the energy transition. Uh, which is, I think, something that Stuart, who's got a much longer background than me in rare earths, can probably describe to you in much more detail. Sure, Max. You know, and and I think the the, the funny thing about this is most people don't know what rare earths are. They're, they're those things that sit down at the bottom of the periodic table, just above uranium and thorium, those fun ones. Um, and and nobody covers them in high school chemistry. You know, and 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 the funny part about rare earths is they're not actually that rare. Um, mm. They're rare in as much as they don't often come in a lot of concentration in the earth, but they're, they're kind of all around us. They're all over the place. Um, now, rare earths are also not used all that much, but where they are used, they are, are adding a massive, massive value. Um, the ones that, that uh, you know, Arafura, the company that I work for and joined about five years ago, is really interested in. Uh, neodymium, neodymium and praseodymium, and yeah, everybody stumbles over it. So for that, we call it NDPR because those ones are the ones that go into ultra high strength permanent magnets. Now, we've all sort of played around with um, you know those really strong little magnets that stick like uh, like you can't believe, and then there doesn't seem to be anything to them. Well, those are rare earth magnets, and it's the rare earths that go in there that do all that funky physics stuff and make a, a, a magnet that is so, so super strong that that you you wouldn't believe them. Wow. Does that make sense? <laughs> so it does make sense. Um, you say that's not that rare, but so why do we call it rare earths then? Oh, I'm going to blame some old chemistry guy. You know, uh, they're, they're also known as the lanthanides if you want to, if you want to get all chemical, but um, yeah. They're called rare earths, and and it's a lot easier to explain. I guess they're rare around the earth, in as much as mo- at the moment it's something like about eighty five percent of the rare earths produced in this world are refined, mined, and refined under the control of China, um, and mm. and that makes it a very interesting geopolitical situation as well. Mm. The the other explanation that I had heard about why they were colloquially called rare earths originally it's because although there's a lot of them in the earth crust they're challenging to extract and so for a long time it was it was it was difficult to create a lot of processed rare earth metal which made them rare mm. I'll, I'll take that one max <laughs> um and you there Stuart, you touched upon uh the incredible properties of rare earth very very strong magnets earlier uh, you guys were talking about how rare earths are involved in in, in all sorts of end uses within the energy transition, things like electric vehicles, for example. Maybe, Stuart, you could just explain how strong magnets make things like electric vehicles a better product. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and, and, and the reason why, I get digging into that, you know, when, when you have an electric motor, basically you have two rotating or one stationary and one rotating magnetic field. So, you know, that, that's how these things work. We'll pick the engineering nerd over here in this corner. So... When when you when you have a motor and and particularly an electric vehicle or a, or a wind turbine or or something like that, really what what you're trying try, kind of looking for is the lightest weight and the lowest energy energy consumption to get you from A to B. It's like in your petrol car, 
you, you, you want to be able to drive around using the least amount of petrol in an electric vehicle. And I've got one on order. Um, you know, you want to be able to drive around plugging it in the least amount and use the least amount of electrons. So if you've got one of those magnetic fields um, being generated from a permanent magnet rather than from an electromagnet, then you're using less energy to get the wheels turning, if you like. Now, um, the, the research that we did here when we were doing some marketing work was that a rare earth permanent magnet motor is about 15% more efficient than an induction motor where you've got two, two electromagnet coils. Um, so in that respect, imagine you've got a 15% more efficient, fuel-efficient vehicle. So that's why they're super important. And then when you think about, say, a wind turbine, you know, we've got only a certain amount of wind blowing past it. So if you've got 15% more um, efficiency in your generation, you get 15% more bang for your buck for the capital cost of putting up a wind turbine. Now, I guarantee you guys have actually got a rare earth magnet motor at home right now or if you haven't a lot of a lot of people who listen to this will have anybody got a brushless cordless drill that's what they sell them as now they've got a permanent magnet motor in it that will generally use rare earths so so they are kind of all around us but with the energy transition that's going on the demand for rare earths has really jumped jumped through the roof in recent days add to that the whole covid situation and wanting to have diversification of supply chains outside of one particular country. And, and all of a sudden, the, the world is sort of thinking critical minerals. We've all heard about lithium and graphite and so on and so forth. But they're starting to think about rare earths in reality and, and mm. saying we need different sources of these to actually achieve the goals that we have for decarbonizing our, our society. It, it's interesting, Stuart, that you mentioned the supply chain for rare earths there. I was reminded of the other day when I was in Bunnings, which is a chain of hardware stores here in Australia, and I could see some neodymium magnets which were on sale. I think they were for hanging pictures. So just these tiny magnets which you stick to the back of a picture frame. And because of the work that I'm doing with Arapura, it immediately made me think of where that magnet has come from. So where the where the original iron ore, uh, sorry, the original um, ND ore would have come from, where it would have been processed, probably in China. And then it had made its way all the way to Australia. Wow. So, so if I could, if I could say some of, um, I mean, there's a lot of science going around and I'm enjoying it. Um, but so what you're saying is that rare earth makes, um, our use of energy more efficient. When it comes to electric motors, which you need mm. for an electric vehicle or a wind turbine, mm. those rare earth permanent magnets that go into those um, motors are more efficient. I mean, rare earths are used in a lot of other things. I mean, you know, uh, we, other rare earths, those are neodymium and praseodymium. Other rare earths like um, cerium and lanthanum are used, and they're a lot more abundant than NDPR. They're used in catalysts for um, refining. Um, if you do have a petrol car, you stinky heathen. You know, really, the, the catalyst that converts uh, in, the, um, in, in the catalytic converter would have lanthanum in it. So rare earths are all around us. If you like, they're the 11, part of the 11 special herbs and spices that go into making ordinary, everyday things amazing. So it's not just rare 
it's like rare earth. There's like a lot of them. It's not just one specific thing yeah. we're talking about. There's there's about oh, and my, this is where I find the the chemical engineer doesn't have much chemistry. Um, I think there's about <laughs> eleven rare earths that are eleven elements that are classified as rare earths. It's also probably important to differentiate between critical minerals and rare earths because they're two similar sounding things, but actually rare earth is a subset of critical minerals. Mm. Um, criticality when we talk about critical minerals is really referring to the importance of these whole range of different minerals in the energy transition uh, and the fact that supply for a lot of them is going to have to increase in scale dramatically um, but they're not interchangeable terms rare earth is one subset of a larger larger definition wow and that includes things like copper for example so so traditional metals but which we're going to need a lot more of as we electrify everything mm. I've read somewhere, um, and it's making the headlines in Europe. Well, actually, not really the headlines, but it's um, it's uh, it's in Europe. We have found um, some rare earths in Sweden, but it will take some time. It will take probably fifteen years for the rare earths from Sweden to be used in our to get into our phones or electric cars. So, and in fifteen years, we won't even know if. We would need this kind of components in our um, thing. So why does it take so long? Look, and and I think I think Max touched on it earlier. You know, it it really comes down to the processing. Um, the the mining of these things is fairly easy. I mean, you know, dig it up. There's a whole. It's it's the same as mining anything. But the processing, because what you're trying to do is take something that's one or two percent of all rare earths. So of our ore body, for example, at Nolan's, um, you know, where our head grade is is around that sort of, you know, about 0.7, 0.8% NDPR. And we take that 0.7 or 0.8%, we refine that to 99.9% NDPR. So, you know, th there's a massive amount of processing that goes on. And and these things are really, um, there, there's, a, uh, there's a lot of chemistry that goes into it to both get it into a form that you can play with it, get it in solution, purify it, separate it from those, from the other rare earths as well at the end. So it's the processing that takes the time. And, and to give you some perspective, you know, Nolans was discovered, that's the project that I'm running. Nolans was discovered in, in about 2001. You know, they were out there looking for uranium. Um, luckily, the, 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 the deposit was largely outcropping so it was expressing through the surface. And so a plane with a, a radiometer, um, very sensitive radiometer, flew over the top of it and it went, spring, there you go. And so they went and looked at the rocks and went, no, there's not enough uranium there to be uh, interesting. But uh, another geologist came along and went, ah, there's some rare earths in that. And, but mm. it took us, we've been going for, uh, you know, 20, 20 plus years to work out and crack the Rosetta Stone of how to process this particular ore body and how much it is there and where it is and all those fun other fun things you do in mining um, to actually work out how to get the rare earths out of it in a in a in a cost effective manner. Wow. Reminds me of Black Panther, you know, looking for vibranium. <laughs> oh look no, this stuff is may, way more fun than vibranium. And you know, I you, you you do have the advantage of seeing me. You can imagine me in a in a, in a tight leather suit. 
There's a reason I'm an engineer. <laughs> yeah, better move the conversation on quickly from that. <laughs> I, I think that... Go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, if this is more interesting than Vibranium, then this just got like 1,000% more cool. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's probably worth explaining um, the role that Arafura plays in that value chain, which takes you from going from a rock in the ground all the way through to that magnet, which I was buying in a hardware store or mm. the magnet, which goes into an electric vehicle. The you, you, first of all, you've got to get that rock out the ground and Stuart mentioned that already. It's, a, it, it's the same as mining anything else. Mm -hmm. um, in the example of Nolan's an open pit mine, then there is the processing and Stuart, I'm sure we'll delve into more detail and all the different steps within the processing. But the interesting thing about the, the Nolens project, which Arafura is running, is it's not just a mining project. It's not just getting the rock out the ground. It's actually doing the refining and the processing mm. up until you get to the point where you have NDPR oxide. So you haven't got the metal yet, but you've got the oxide. Um, and then that goes to a facility where it goes through an electrolysis process, which turns it into metal. And then from there, the metal is manufactured into the magnets. And then that goes off into the equipment or whatever what the end use of it is. So um, when you we we talk about Arafura and the Nolans project as a mining project, but that's actually it's not really a mining project. It's much more of a processing project. Maybe you want to say a bit more. Yeah, on that yeah. Look, and and look, Max is dead right there. You know, Nolans is uh, probably only about fifteen percent or ten percent of of what we're doing at Nolans is actually mining. You know, yeah. um, we we have what I would consider in the mining industry uh, a very small baby mine off to the side um, to the point where it's so small. In the early years, when I talked about the fact that we were outcropping, we don't even mine continuously for the first 10 years of the project. We mine for a couple of years, stockpile it, and then come back in a couple of years' time after that, after we've been processing off stockpiles. So we, we don't mm. really mine continuously even. But when we get to the processing plant, you know, Max glossed over, said one big processing plant, but really we go through several multiple different stages. Now, uh, all rare earth deposits are slightly different, so they all have different processes, And but I can talk about the Nolans process. So the first stage we go through is what we call beneficiation, where we, we're physically separating the good bits of the ore from the bad bits of the ore. And, and from that, we get about 40% of the ore goes into what we call a concentrate. Um, so now we've gone from, say, 3% total rare earths to maybe 7 or 8% total rare earths. We then take that, and because of some of the, the specialties in our product, we then leach that, that ore in phosphoric acid. Because we have a phosphate-hosted ore that actually releases more phosphate into the phosphoric acid than what we started with. The stuff that doesn't leach has got all the rare earths in it. So we then collect the leach residue filter that and and keep that as a as a, a um as a uh feeding into the next phase of the project but because of our ore being a phosphate we regenerate our phosphoric acid and we actually reuse that in the front end to releach the more concentrate of course we produce a bit of excess phosphoric acid so in the as a byproduct we make phosphoric acid product and we send that off to other customers who then use that to make fertilizers so, you know, we're trying to get everything we can out of the ore that we have. 
which I think is a really important part of of modern mining is you always want to get the most value from what you what you're digging up out of the ground. Once we have the the residues, we then use what I like to call the metallurgical big hammer. So we mix that with sulfuric acid, concentrated sulfuric acid, and we heat it up. What that does is turn all of the minerals in there from a phosphate mineral into a sulfate mineral. Um, and and you know this stuff is highly corrosive. We've also got some fluorine in there, so you're getting HF gas coming off, which we have to capture and deal with, so we so we don't have any 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 bad effects on anyone that works there. And then we can drop that into water, chilled water in our case, to drop all of the rare earths into solution as a rare earth sulfate. Um, once we do the solid liquid separation again, we can then we then want to precipitate out those rare earth sulfates. So we mix it with methanol, and that changes the solubility, and we get rare earth sulfate precipitating out, and we leave a lot of the thorium behind, which is a really good thing because we don't want the thorium. We want to deal with that and impound that and put that safely to the side. Once we have the rare earth sulfate in solution, we then convert that to a hydroxide, refine that a little bit using some magnesia, and then we leach out the near the non-cerium rare earths from the rare earth mixed rare earth hydroxide to produce a rare earth chloride. So there's a lot of chemistry going on. There's a lot of mm. equipment going on. There's lots of stages of add a reagent, precipitate or dissolve something, filter it out, take, take one of them, throw something away. And then we do the final stage, which is separation, where we take those rare earth chloride liquors and we separate out into first a heavy and mid-rare earths, which is only a minor component of what we do. We separate out a pure NDPR oxide solution and then we leave the rest. The lanthanum just goes to tails in our case. We then precipitate out the rare earths with oxalic acid to produce, once we calcine it, a rare earth oxide that is 99.9% NDPR oxide. So it's, it's a, a big complex chemistry set. And you mm. know, the Nolan's processing plant, for example, is about 1.3 kilometers long by 700 meters wide. So it's as big as the central business district of the of Darwin, which is the capital city of the Northern Territory. So we're, we're probably going to have to get some bikes to get around there, I think, once we get there. But we'll use electric bikes. So we've got some rare earth magnet motors in those electric bikes. <laughs> well, maybe scooters. They seem to be the big thing at the moment. <laughs> um, and, and Stuart is the, is the chemical engineer by background, so he, he can talk about the chemistry. I came to this project looking at it from an energy and emissions perspective. So I basically think of all the words that Stuart just said and then the loss of energy. Yeah, yeah. So it, and and it is a massive amount of energy we need to put in, both in terms of um, electricity. You know, we're, we've all those, all those processes we're talking about are using a lot of electricity, but also steam. We use a massive amount of steam, you know, some 200-odd tonnes an hour of um, low-pressure steam just to heat things up. So a lot of our process is heating things up, cooling things down as well. Mm. I, I did some sums a little while ago on the amount of, uh, amount of steam you're generating, and it was something like boiling an, uh, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, because everything should be Olympic-sized swimming Absolutely. pools. Um, every eight hours or something. It was, it was an enormous amount of energy that you're putting in to create all that steam. Oh, wow. Oh, that, that's actually pretty inherent in any rare earth extraction process it, uh, it it takes a lot of energy we're talking about energy transition and this is the use of energy 
which is required. Um, I looked up some figures recently published by the International Energy Agency, the IEA, and that talked about an average for neodymium, which is one of our products, of um, 76 kilograms, if you jump into the emissions now, 76 kilograms of um, CO2 equivalent per kilogram of product, which is produced for ND, neodymium. Um, and that's compared to, um, if I were to look at the stats, uh, a much lower number for iron and steel. So iron and steel would be around 1.5 kilograms per kilogram. So, you know, nearly, nearly 50 times as much. Um, we just said something about the um, energy and, and at the moment emissions intensity, because the majority of, as Stuart mentioned, the majority of rare earth processing is happening in China right now. Um, and the electricity which they'll be using will be coming from a electricity grid, which will still have a significant coal component to it, although the Chinese grid is becoming greener, um, which then takes us into the challenges around doing the Nolans project in a way which is consistent with Arafura's goals to achieve net zero by 2050. Yeah, and I think it's, it's worth pointing out too, it, you know, net zero isn't the only goal that we have at Arafura. You know, I mean, we, we want to we hit the best standards. We want to become an industry leader in ESG. So, you know, Central Australia, you think about as being a bit of a boring old place full of a desert, but it's actually an interesting ecosystem out there. And, you know, water is very precious. So we use it, all that steam, we use a lot of water as well, but we've got to conserve water. And, and you know, we've got the Aboriginal heritage in the area um, that we want to make sure that we preserve and, and, and we want to provide benefit for the local communities and the, and the Indigenous people. So, ESG of all kinds is really important to us. And, and you know, I think mining is a, an inherently unsustainable activity. You, you have an ore body, you dig it out of the ground, it's gone. How can that be sustainable? Um, you know, but I think what we're targeting, and, and this is not unique to Arafura. I mean, I think a lot of the world's mining companies, uh, you know, certainly the ones I have anything to do with in Australia, are all starting to think this way. We know that there will be impacts from mining, but we need to make sure that we maximise the benefits to the greater community and minimise those impacts. And, and you know, as Max pointed out, carbon footprint is a, is a big issue with rare earth mining. So it's probably one of our biggest challenges. So maybe you can walk us through some of the you know, actions you're taking in regards to ESG and how you're doing things better and uh, you'll make it useful. Uh, efficient use of um, resources, energy, and also um, taking care of the people. Well, I think one of the key parts there is, you know, we're doing all our processing from ore right through to a rare earth oxide on one site. And, and that allows us to really take charge and responsibility for all of our waste and byproduct and, and, and tailing streams, you know. And, and by doing that, we're not shipping the problem off overseas. You know, a lot of rare earths, and, and because of chemistry, um, which I won't delve into, rare earths always come with a little bit of radioactivity. So, you know, mm. managing that radioactivity and impounding that radioactivity in a responsible manner is probably one of our most important things we need to do. The other big thing is obviously biodiversity, you know, making sure that we we you know we have a couple of species on site the black-footed rock wallaby the great desert skink or the western desert skink i can never remember which skink it is um you know is on site and the mulgara 
you know, so we're very careful to map those out and understand where where they are so that we don't impact on their habitats. Um, you know, in the Aboriginal heritage, you know, it's it's not it's not rock art on walls of caves and things like that, which some of our mining company brethren haven't done so well with. Um, but you know, that there is there is there is some Aboriginal heritage there that goes back many, many years. Um, you know, and uh, when we did our cultural awareness uh, session uh, a couple of years back, you know, one of the things that was really rammed home to me is that, you know, in the in the day, the Aboriginal people were always in touch with the ground. They slept on the ground. They walked on the ground. They didn't have shoes. So the mm. the, the land is their is their history. The land is a big part of who they are. So, you know, we need to basically everything we do, we're thinking about well, where are the cultural sensitivities in this area? How do we make sure that their story of the land um, goes on, but at the same time, they can be part of a big participant in this project so that, you know, they can get jobs, they can get, you know, um, uh, benefits from the project as we ex- as we exploit the natural resources of the land um, to to lift them up and, and drive that social change that comes with economic change. Um, maybe it would be worth touching on how because uh, we talked about the different kinds of EFG, you've been in the project for five years now and it's been going longer. How do you think the views of stakeholders have changed over over time on that? What have you seen? Yeah, look, I mean, I've been in the mining industry now for well over 30 years. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm much older than what I look, um, especially in Black Panther suits. Um, but uh, <laughs> I can't help but make a joke. Um, I have seen an amazing change in the last 30 years. Um, you know, 30 years ago when I joined the mining industry, I'll, I'll be blunt, it, even the environment side of things wasn't of great interest. Um, whereas nowadays, and, and, then, and then for a long time, environment became very important. Um, but, but nowadays, I think that, you know, everybody's starting to realise that everything we do, every action we take, um, you know, we need to think about what the impacts of those actions are. We need to make sure that everybody gets an opportunity to participate in in this industry as much as we can. We need to make sure there's diversity. I mean, all, all of those really important things. And, you know, we went through a process in Arafura a couple of years back where we looked at what is important to our stakeholders, um, you know, and greenhouse gases is, is, was probably the, the first one on the list. You know, that, that is so important. Um, yeah, and what 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 I find really interesting about that is, and I don't know what Max's experience has been in in industry, is that in Australia at least anyway, we don't have a big government driving greenhouse gas um, improvements and decarbonisation down our throats. Um, you know, we've we've had maybe a government that was you know less active in that space, but the mining industry particularly has got on with it anyway. You know, the number of mines that you'll see in, in Western Australia and in the rest of Australia that has a wind farm or a solar farm and a battery, you know, they're not fully decarbonised, but they're, they're on that journey. And it's not because mm. of legislation. It's because that's what people demand. You know, they demand action from people like us who are basically, you know, mining the, the country's resources and, uh, and, and trying to lift everybody up with that. Well, that's beautiful. Perhaps the the striking part for me is how, um, because what what we're slowly seeing, or maybe not slowly, but what we're starting to see is the transition from, I mean, because initially when 
when we talk about mining, all we talk about is what we're mining and what we can use what we're mining for. Um, but it's quite interesting to see how the conversation is is moving towards, well, if we're mining at all, we have to do it in the right way and in the way that it doesn't hurt, you know. Um, I mean, because why would we why, why would we mine things from the earth that are useful to us and then sort of destroy ourselves in the process of doing that? It's like it's like a good bad situation. Um, but but that's quite interesting to see. And thanks for leading the way. Thanks for leading the way on that end. Um, and, and I know you've talked about a, a number of things that rare earth is is used for. Um, and, and our audience is sort of used to very, uh, perhaps lower, lower, um, intellectually demanding conversations, uh, you know, like roundabouts. We had a conversation about roundabouts last week and we were just talking about how it's better to have roundabouts instead of traffic lights, um, and stuff like that. And so, you know, switching to, or, you know, presenting this kind of conversation, which I find very, very interesting. Um, it's like, okay, if if we wanted to join, if we had like people that wanted to perhaps contribute or, um, you know, it's like, what can, what can people do um, on their end? And one of the reasons I'm asking this is because, you know, when I, I saw your video, Max, and you, you had a very interesting way of putting like personal responsibility and, you know, responsibility on many levels. And I think you, you give an interesting example about how you used energy and your swimming pool um, and, and a lot of things like that. And that was quite interesting, which is um, what is sort of leading to the question that I'm asking now. It's like, well, right, if people that are probably not so grounded in chemistry or like what are ways that our listeners can sort of contribute to the work that that you're doing i I could have a bit of a stab at that i I think that you raise a really interesting point when it comes to something like rare earth Mm. because no one other than if you need magnets to hang a picture (laughs) goes to the shop looking to buy a rare earth right yeah it's one of these things which for the consumer is really hidden Mm. Um, and the world that we live in is full of things like that. So I can, I can be the, the, the best that I think I can be in terms of reducing my personal carbon footprint by using less energy, uh, you know, driving less, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, I'm sitting in a building right now, which is constructed of concrete, mm. which has a significant footprint associated with it. Um, and I use infrastructure every day and there's all these de- um, upstream components to the supply chains of the things that I use and and um, some things you have some visibility of like things you buy in the supermarket and other things you've got no visibility of whatsoever so I think one part of what people can do and this is what uh, me and others within the net zero network would try to do is just to really educate yourself mm. on where a, a consumer can have impact because I don't really buy into the narrative that it's um, all about systemic change, which means it's up to someone else, government, whoever it is, to solve the whole problem. Yeah, Systems are made of people, and um, people acting in certain ways, whether that be as consumers or, or otherwise, um, 
is ultimately what impacts on systems and creates systems change. Mm. But it, it, it's it's not necessarily easy to know exactly where to turn and what differences to make unless you educate yourself, which is why a podcast like this with a Carbon Almanac and the whole Carbon Almanac project in general is actually fantastic just for trying to build people's understanding of where the emissions in our world actually come from and where you've got points of leverage. I, I guess if I could jump in there, Max, I think, I think, you know, I think you're dead right. I think use less. That's, you know, that's, mm. that's even as mm. a, even as a dodgy nerdy engineer, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm operating at the moment. But, you know, I, I think the other part of it is, you know, you're talking at Olivanji about getting involved in rare earths and how, how do you do that? And I think that that's where government does have a role to play. Um, mm. You know, these projects are hard to get up. They are big. They are mm. complicated. And most of them are owned by relatively small companies. You know, when, mm. I, when I joined um, Arafura five years ago, you know, we were, we were probably about 10 or 12 people um, and, and the whole company is worth about 50 or $60 million, staring wow. down the barrel of trying to develop a now $1.6 billion project. You know, wow. So that is, that is an amazing task. It, it is insane. But but if people mm. care and and people people vote that 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 counts, um, mm. hopefully. But um, you know, then governments get on board and they do something about it. Now, Arafura has been quite lucky. We've received support for up to you know three hundred and fifty million Aussie dollars from the, the Australian government. Um, and wow. and just the other day, the the German export credit agency agreed to guarantee debt for us for up to 600 million us wow um if we're selling rare earths into the german manufacturing industry so mm. that is how governments which really are hopefully the representative of the people and 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 will hopefully have that little bit longer time frame to look at things that is that is how people get involved in this sort of project because if if we don't have the support of governments if we if we don't have the 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 support of the people then then these sorts of projects won't happen and and getting the decarbonization that we want to see happen with electric vehicles with you know with with wind turbines and all all the other really really good technologies that are developing at the moment we mm. we won't have the raw ingredients to get it done wow and so um this this might be a bit of a recap but also to emphasize what you said and so the use of rare earth really helps us with decarbonization um, and to get that to be in as many places as possible. I mean, make it available for use. Um, the government, the buying of the government is very helpful. And usually when the people are educated and they start to talk about things like this, then it piques the interest of the government. And the government is also um is more like motivated or uh you know because generally the government should seek the interest of the people um and then they are able to give support on that end and that's that's very interesting and you know starting with education makes it even more profound because it's sort of free it's like well if if you're really interested in helping out um maybe let's start by educating you know like educate yourself get some of resources like this you don't need to get all the chemistry but just like me i mean i've learned a lot having this conversation with you and there's a lot of things i'm hearing for the first time 
but definitely if I were to have a conversation with someone else, my, my conversation will be different because now I have a bit more knowledge about this. Um, and if, if that goes around, then it makes it very, very easy or, well, at least easier for, um, for us to get the buy-in of, of the government, um, which is quite interesting. And so you want to say something, Max? Oh, I was just going to say that um, it's, a lot of it is about identifying information sources you can trust as well. So we're in a world which is obviously awash with information, uh, and not all of that information is even partially true. So what's good about a resource like the Carbon Almanac um, is that it is something which is, it's, it's old school journalism in a way. You know, yeah. you, you, you presented all this research, which has then got references behind it and so on. Yeah. Um, so identifying those kinds of places that you can go to for information to help you understand how rare earths fit in or, or anything else is really important. Yeah. Um, for example, on the rare earth side, there is a good report on critical minerals in general by the IEA, mm. um, the International Energy Agency, which is well worth a read. Perhaps this would be a good point for me to jump in and talk a little bit more about the decarbonization plans that we have yeah that would be great for the the nolan's project is that okay yeah um it that in itself has been a, a a whole story of its own on top of the very interesting story of the nolan's project which stuart has already talked about we've already talked about the energy intensity associated with rare earth extraction and i think it's fair to say when the nolan's project was originally conceived it was a very different world to the world of today. Mm. So the, the project is not connected to an electricity grid, um, but it is by a gas pipeline. And so it needs to use a lot of energy. And I think originally you would have looked at that gas pipeline and said, okay, well, that, that's our source of energy. That's fine. Uh, but awareness has moved on and the desire of our stakeholders and actually us as a company to do things differently so that we're not creating the emissions associated with the combustion of that gas in future um, has really come to the fore. RFU went public with that in, uh, I believe it was 2021 with a net zero yeah. 2050 commitment. Mm. Um, and then from there, it's been a lot of work within the company to, to figure out what, let, let's go from the bold commitment, which a lot of companies are making around that time, but it was still a big thing for this company to do given its energy requirements. How do we go from there to make turning that into reality? And, and, and it was a really interesting conversation. I remember talking to our board of directors, Max, and, and we were talking about, you know, are we going to make this net zero 2050 commitment? And, and they turned around to me and said, oh, so do you think we can do it? And, and I went, well, I reckon the, the first bit's fairly easy. And the second bit, I think I know how we can do that. But, you know, the last bit, we're just going to have to take a bit of a leap of faith, make the commitment and then go for it. Mm. And, and I think that's what it takes. You know, you don't have to know exactly how you're going to get to the end of this journey. You mm. just have to take the first step and, and make that commitment. And, yep. and it was really interesting. And they took me in my word. And so now we've got to deliver. <laughs> <laughs> Hence, Max. Hence me, yeah. So that, that got me involved in the project. So I, I started in the project um, nearly a year ago now. And, and it started with just understanding what the emissions of the project were. So what are the big drivers of emissions? And we've already touched on that. And if it's not, it's not the mining, although we will be using some big mining trucks, that's a relatively small percentage of the emissions likely to be created. Um, it's much more about the electricity which you require to feed the processing facility but also the thermal energy requirements, the steam that you're trying to make in this processing facility. 
as well. Um, and there are a number of different ways in which you can do that if you're using gas. So you can generate electricity in, a, in an engine um, or a gas turbine, um, and then you might be able to use some of that heat to generate some of your steam. You will, might mm. also need to supplement that with a boiler, which is just like a big kettle, basically, uh, to create additional steam as well. And all of that, all of that burns gas. Um, so once we'd understood that that was where the majority of the emissions were coming from, what we call the stationary power, then we started to look around at what the different options were to do that in a different way in the future so that we weren't relying on that gas combustion and creating the emissions. Um, and that was the point where you get so many different ideas thrown at you mm. because everyone's listening to things in the news all the time. We sit on, in an office here with um, 50 engineers. Everyone's got their own pet idea. Um, and that actually creates this almost paralysis about not knowing which way mm. to turn next. And I think a lot of companies were going through that process at the same time as well. Mm. So we realized, and this came out of a conversation between me and Stuart, that we needed to be systematic about how we sifted through these options. And we needed to come up with a way in which we could decide what combination of different things was going to get us to the net zero emissions, which we were targeting by 2050, mm. um, reducing them in a way along the way, 2030, 2040, which we we're happy with, which also delivered the best value to the company. So mm. what was the lowest cost, least risk way of, of doing this? And you can't look at all the options because as, as soon as you start considering whether or not you're going to use hydrogen as a fuel, uh, whether or not you're going to, what you're going to do with renewable electricity and wind on site, um, more out there ideas like people were talking at the time about small modular nuclear reactors, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but there are just too many options to get your head around to compare everything with everything else. Mm. Um, so we took a pathway development approach where we looked at, well, what are the credible different things that we could bring together and introduce progressively over time, which would get us to net zero? Can we come up with a representative, a handful number of those pathways which would enable us to understand what the range of different solutions were and what the likely costs were. And uh, we were helped out in that by a, a local government department here called the Minerals Research Institute of WA, who done some really, really good work on a process that you could follow to do that and do that kind of a analysis. Um, and then the fun bit was coming up with what these different technologies would stitch together. Mm. Um, and all of that eventually led to us making some decisions which we put out as a release to the market in January this year, where we described what our, our pathway to get to net zero by 2050 was going to be. Wow. And, and that's interesting to see. Uh, I mean, the first signal that I get is that, you know, you care, you care enough to not just make bold decisions. Because, I mean, if you go through the Carbon Almanac, one of the things that was also discussed there is greenwashing. Um, and greenwashing is basically organizations making very bold claims that they care, well, that they either care nothing about or are not making efforts to actualize. Um, and, and so we see a lot of that. The Daily Difference published an article one time and they made a list of companies that were actually greenwashing. And those companies simply said, hey, we're carbon neutral or we're reducing our carbon, you know, emissions by 80% in the next five years. And they're not making any effort towards getting that done. And, you know, that's a, that's, you know, that's a question of commitment because 
you know, following your conversation and going through the promise that you've made to even publishing the pathway to making that possible or your strategy for actualizing that is really, really beautiful to see for a company that mines as a matter of fact, because it's like, well, we're doing a lot of work mining already. Can we just focus on that? Um, but, you know, just listening to you is quite, you know, it makes me hopeful that perhaps there are a couple other organizations, you know, trying to do the same thing. Um, and, and I think I think I think there are a lot doing it. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, Olabanji. You know, I mean, yeah. realistically, you'd think, oh, we're going to decarbonize. It's going to cost us all this money. Mm. So what? What about our shareholders? But but I think what jumped out of this, and and it, and it almost, I guess, I kind of half suspected it, but it 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 was a really really pleasant surprise when we when we did the analysis and we looked at the cost is. You know, if if we develop the projects in, in line and, and we don't have great big technical problems when we're starting up the plant, um, you know, I mean, for the first sort of, you know, 15 years of operation of our project, by decarbonizing, by going down that pathway, now we won't get all the way to zero in that first 15 mm. years, mm. we'll actually save money. Wow. So So not only are we doing the right thing, we're going to save some money doing it. And, and that's because... That's the same story which has played out in electricity grids all around the world. You know, solar PV and onshore wind turbines are at a price point now where once you've raised the capital to install them, you then you're getting electricity for free, basically. Mm. Um, and so um, if you can harness that electricity at the time that it's available, mm. then it's very likely to be lower cost than the fossil fuel alternative. And, and that's what we've found. Mm. Uh, the the challenging bit and the more uh, interesting technically bit, I suppose, from from the work I did on the on the pathway development was what comes after that. So once you've got to the point where you've introduced these electrical renewables, so solar definitely we're in the middle of the Northern Territory. There's a lot of sunshine available to you for eight hours a day. Wind probably some batteries to store that energy. That will take you to a certain point, but you've still got a big requirement around the generation of the steam. Mm. Um, and what happens when the uh, sun isn't shining, when you've had a few cloudy days in, in a row and, and no wind. Mm. Um, that led to us considering more innovative solutions, uh, things like concentrated solar thermal, uh, which is probably worth a quick deviation down, if, if you don't mind taking a minute or two on it, just to describe what it is for your listeners. Uh, so concentrated solar thermal is, is basically the equivalent of taking a magnifying glass, uh, putting it in the sun and using that to heat up a pile of leaves on the ground and set it on fire. Wow. So it, it, it's nothing to do with generating energy from the sun using a photovoltaic panel, which is a normal solar panel. Instead, it's concentrating the rays of the sun into one particular place so you make something really, really hot. Mm. And normally that's some sort of uh, working fluid, which you can move past this hot place and then go and do useful things with. Often it's molten salt. It can be oil as well. Um, when we looked at that, we found that a very cost-effective solution for us because we could take this molten salt and then we could use that to heat water and create the steam. And that whole process is actually remarkably efficient. Wow. Um, and, the, and the great thing about that molten salt is you can also have big, big vats of it, uh, which, may, which stay hot. So you can heat up this stuff during the day and then you can have it sitting there 
at night, still warm, still generating that steam. Wow. So we think that has a big potential part to play in the future of the, of the decarbonisation of the plant. And and that's it's very particular about our project that we have this thermal demand. Um, yeah. But at, but at the end of the day, one of one of the hardest parts for us, and where where the where we're going to want technology to really come to us a little bit more, um, is is around that final bit of firming. That last maybe it's ten percent, maybe it's five percent. I don't know. But we're still at the moment we're going okay. We're still going to burn gas for that bit until mm. we get some decent. Um, so, some decent technology coming to us, and, and and look, looking at the way things are going in the world, I'm fairly comfortable with that. You know, I think I think there's there's things we haven't even thought about yet that that'll be part of our final solution. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but but I'm sure that you you would actually figure it out because um, I, I think it was yesterday uh, I was I was reading an article and it says right we really don't need the answers as much as we need to ask the right questions. And if we're asking the right questions, then we're down the path to getting the answers. And it's like, well, if the problem is not solved, chances are we're not asking the right questions or, you know, perhaps we do not even uh, care in the way that we should to solve the problem. So just listening to you asking these questions and, you know, sort of painting what the path might look like it's sort of like an assurance that you would actually figure it out. Like all the technology that we have are here because people were asking questions that led to some of those solutions. So I have zero doubt that that you figure it out. And that's that's um, that's also like kudos to you for all the really great work that you're doing and the way that you're thinking about, um, you know, your technology and and all the the work that you're doing. Um, Liki has asked me to ask a question, uh, and so I'm I'm just gonna ask that right now. <laughs> and so she says, how how to connect rare earth production from the Nolans project with real life usage, and for how long, or how much supply? Um, I guess we could answer that in terms of what the future outlook for the use of rare earth looks like. Mm. Yeah. Um, that. Would you like to? Have a go uh, yeah, I was going to say, like the, the projected data that we we have looking at it, and and bearing in mind that every electric vehicle has has got about one point eight to two kilos of rare earth oxide in it. Um, yeah, you know, interestingly, only about a kilo of that is actually in the drive motor. The rest is in electric windows and all those other, you know, power steering and fun things we have. Um, mm. So, so we, we're we're t we're talking about Nolans, which is going to produce about four and a half thousand tons a year of NDPR oxide, and each car has got a kilo, uh, one just say two kilos in it. Wow! And we're producing four and a half thousand tons. If you go if you go to a wind turbine, a wind turbine might have say one hundred and fifty kilos in it. So, so we're talking about a lot. However, if you look at the supply and demand from the world. We need between now and I think it's 2040, um, about 11 projects just like Nolan's around the world to supply that extra demand that's coming. Um, you know, the great thing about Nolan's um, and, and, you know, also Mount World, which is another, the only rare earths project, integrated project outside of uh, China, um, they both have very long life mines. Um, we have about 38 years in our life of mine at the moment. 
but we've also done drilling on site that takes the ore body down to 400 metres deep, which is double the depth of our current pan pit. So, you know, we're, whilst we've got 38 years in our, in our, in our um, economics at the moment, we're, we're looking at a project that I think will be there for, you know, 60, 70 years. And, and one of the great things about that, and I know for me, this is really important, and, and a lot of the people who work for me, a lot of the boring, you know, nasty mining types and engineers really believe in this is that having such a long life of mine and operating in central Australia where, you know, life is tough, mm. um, you know, we, we have an opportunity to make intergenerational change for mm. the for the local people out there, for the communities, for the Indigenous people mm. and, and, you know, actually add a lot of value to the community out there, which is, that's, that's really exciting, you know, and uh, if you ever get a chance to go to central Australia, take it. It's it's a mm. it's a unique part of the world. Wow. Okay. I'm I'm taking that. Well, I'm hoping to go there some way someday. In, oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say I'm hoping to go there one day and see um, a lot of uh, solar farms, wind turbines, and concentrated solar thermal. Well, I think you're young enough. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you, uh, Max. Do, do you want to do you want to say something? Do you want to add um, any thoughts to that? Uh, the the only thing I'd go back to is your point about asking the right question. And it's only sometimes in delving deep into the detail of these kinds of problems that you start to understand what the right question is. Stuart mentioned firming power. That was something that I knew about as a concept, that you needed something when you didn't have the renewable resources available. But I went through a process of education in looking at detailed modeling of what the future of this project was like to look like once we introduce some renewables to really understand the importance of this mm. firming question. Because if you've got variable wind and, and variable solar, even when you install lots and lots of energy storage, it's just a it's a statistical fact that because of the variability of the input, at some point you're going to run out of the energy which you require from your renewable mm. sources. And so once you understand that, that means you started to frame the problem and what this firming power looks like, that it's something which you need to give you potentially quite a lot of energy if you don't want to turn off your big chemistry set very, very infrequently and increasingly mm. infrequently. And it's a really, really interesting challenge. And it's not one which is perfectly solved yet. But I think the framing of, to your point, the framing of it, the challenge, means that we can then put that out to lots of very smart engineers over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I have no doubt as well that we'll find a good solution. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Uh, I, there's another interesting question that Linky is asking here, and and she she says, is there a way to track better mining or better processing, um, rare earth in life cycle assessment? And the reference she's making to this is that um, is the narrative that electric vehicles, you know, are not so efficient because of carbon emissions. Uh, for the production of the electric vehicles. So it's like, you know, well, we're not using um, fuel to drive the vehicles, but how do we produce the vehicles? It's like one is offsetting the other. So um, is there a better way to, to track the processing um, of rare earth in, in life cycle assessment? <laughs> I, I'm sure Stu has something to say here, but I, the one thing I'd say before that is that um, it's another example of where checking your facts mm. is really important. 
because the, in the in an electric vehicle, in the production of an electric vehicle, it is true that the carbon footprint of the production will be greater. And you can go and find Nissan have got some quite good published data on this, for example, comparing a like-for-like -like internal combustion engine car of an electric vehicle. But if you look at the life cycle, even plugging into a pretty average electricity grid in terms of its carbon intensity, you're still definitely better off today in terms of the life cycle emissions of that mm. electric vehicle. Um, do you, I don't know if you want to talk about rare earths and how they fit into the life cycles. Of well, yeah, yeah I, and I'd back up exactly what you said there, Max. You know, I mean, I think that people forget about the they they don't they don't do a like for like. They try and do a life cycle analysis on electric vehicles, but then they do a just what you're burning and building analysis. They don't think about the amount of energy used in oil and gas exploration and refining and fuel transport and all those fun things that we do. Mm. Um, mm. You know, but but look, I think the interesting thing about it is, but particularly from rare earth's point of view, um, you know, it's it's actually a very very small part of it. You know, mm. as I, as I said before, every car has got about two kilos of rare earths in it. Now, mm. every internal combustion engine car has got a kilo of rare earths in it. So you know, we're only adding one more kilo. Um, which is a doubling to to make an electric vehicle versus the um, the uh, the internal combustion engine vehicle, but what mm. that does give you is a fifteen percent smaller battery for the same range. Mm. So so rare earths is like that 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 little secret source that makes it a little bit better, and means yeah. that electric vehicles have that better usability, and that they can have a smaller footprint for the same range. Um, so I think, I think that's worth talking about. But look, life cycle assessment is something that we, we haven't done yet. We, we haven't looked at our full life cycle assessment. We, we've focused on our scope one and two emissions. You know what I mean? We, we, we've only just started construction of our project. So we, we've got a long way to go still too. But I think the life cycle assessment concept is, is a really valuable way of looking at things. You know, what we can do is as we develop that is we can use that to determine and, and make some of our supply decisions. So where are mm -hmm. we getting our reagents from? Let's take into account the fact that one of, our, one of the things we want to do later in the project life is to look at making some of our own reagents on site. Now, that'll mean we'll need more energy. But we might be better off having that energy used on site and then reducing the transport of things into site and reducing the manufacturing overseas of some of those chemicals that might mm. be dirty, but mm. we do it clean on site. So, you know, thinking about that overall footprint, I think, is really valuable. But I do yeah. think that the narrative of an unfair comparison, an apples and oranges thing, that that you read about and where people say, oh, rare, you know, electric vehicles are worse. Well, you know, I think I think we've got to we've got to get everybody making those smart, informed decisions, getting the right 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 answers there. Um, yeah. And you know, I mean, I'll go back to the other thing. Um, you know, the best way to use less, uh, have less footprint, is to use less. You know, I mean, drive less, and it doesn't matter what you're driving; you're having less footprint. Um. And I'm a dirty mining guy, you know? <laughs> Think about that for a second. I'm, I'm one of the bad guys that dig up the stuff out of the earth, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, right. I, I think we pretty much have covered, um, you know, the things that we wanted to talk about in this, in this session. And I've totally enjoyed it. Um, but 
perhaps are there any challenges that you're facing with mining that you've not already talked about um and you you'd like to you know maybe throw some light on mm, that's a good question I, I i can answer it from the carbon perspective because i'm afraid that's the lens that i yeah. look at everything through um i i talked earlier about how when this project was conceived it was probably not with the emissions footprint mm. so much in mind as it, as it is today I sometimes wonder, and perhaps this is a conversation for me and Stuart over a beer, how if you were starting from the beginning, what would you mm. do differently? You know, how, how would how would you um, design the plant or the operations of the plant in a way which might make you to be able to be more flexible with your energy use, for instance? So when you are in those points where you've got less renewable power, how can you turn up and down? Um, and so I think um, I think a challenge for us, and this is a challenge for the entire industrial world really is how do you make the best yeah. with what you've got because you're never starting from the ideal situation you've always got an existing asset or you've got a project which has progressed to a certain stage um and and so i think that's something that we'll probably just keep returning to how do we just keep steering steering yeah. our course to improve the outcome and, and and look what what i'd add to that you know is that whole idea that everything we do has a cost you know and i think that and and I'm not going to go out on a limb and say we need a carbon tax and a carbon price. But, but you know, if in reality, if it's important enough, we need to act like that price is there anyway and realise that, you know, carbon's not free, water's not free. And, and, you know, if we're going to be living in this sustainability world that we want to live in where, where we consider the, the impacts of everything, then, then even in the absence of a formalised governmental tax or something like that, we still got to put a price on these things. And and I think that's mm. the thing that I'd do differently if I if I went back and and we we had more time, more resources mm. as well to develop Nolans. Mm. Um, you know, uh, my team, my team a year and a half, two years ago, I know three years ago was two and a half people. We're now sixty five or seventy in my team. Wow. Um, but what I what I do differently is is you would add all these extra cost layers in into your analysis to understand what the true cost of it, not just the capital cost and the operating cost, but the other costs that layer into it. And and I think that if we can get to that as as an industrialized world and as a mining industry, then then yeah. I think we'll be in a better place. Absolutely. I, I totally agree one hundred percent with with that with that idea. Um okay. Okay. Um, so is there anything that, you know, you would like to talk about that we've not already talked about or, you know, we're slowly rounding up, but um, what else is cool that we've not, you know, had the chance to talk about or what would you like our listeners to know about what you're doing and um, perhaps something they should keep at, at the back of their minds um, or, you know, anything in that area? Well, that's a good question. I think, I think I'm pretty talked out on that. <laughs> Um, the, uh, I mean, you know, this podcast is, is around the carbon almanac and, uh, I, I just think it's a fantastic resource. So I'm probably preaching to the converted if I tell the listeners to go and pick up a carbon almanac and flick through it, but it is, it's a really, it's a really good book. And, and I found in the areas which I do know something about, so for example, the decarbonization of shipping, I mentioned my background mm. as a ship designer. Of course, they went straight to the page on the decarbonization of shipping out of this 500 page book yeah. or however big it is to see if I actually thought it stacked up and actually did. 
So that gave me great confidence that the other bits in the book, which I know less about, hopefully are telling me something which is yeah. reasonably correct. Well, that's great. Um, Stuart, you, you want to say something to it? Yeah, look, the, 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 only, the only thing I'd say, and, and, and I think, you know, to, to, to live in interesting times and, uh, is the best thing. And, and I think we are in really, really interesting, fun times because, you know, when, when the Industrial Revolution kicked off and oil and gas became a thing, it was, it was such a step change from everything that came before it mm-hmm. that, you know, that was the solution you went to. That's, that's where energy came from. That was, it was the solution to every problem you had. Mm-hmm. Where we are now, there, there is not one killer solution to solving mm-hmm. this carbon problem that the world has. You know, it is a multimodal solution. And, and I think the work that, that, that Max and I did with, with, with Nolans shows that for Nolans, you know, thermal energy and, and those things, that that's works for us. For another project, it's all about electron storage and electrical energy. And, mm. and I think that's the really cool thing as a, as, a, as a nerdy engineer deep down that we get to throw these, these great ideas around. And, you know, I mean, the mining industry gets a bit of a bad rap um you know and yeah. and look in some cases it deserves it you know there's there's been things that you know i've seen over the years that aren't, aren't something to be proud of but i think the mining industry is also part of the solution you know we're not going to fix this through through you know paper plates or versus you know bamboo plates and things like that <laughs> it's going to require effort from everybody and that's all i could think of at yeah. the time you know, it's going to require effort from everyone. And, and, you know, I think that it's really cool that mining gets to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for making mining sound so cool. Um, and that's what, that's what Leaky says. I think there are so many cool things in this conversation. I think designing ships is cool. Like, I've not been able to get that out of my head since you said that, Max, like, what you design ships <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole separate podcast <laughs> we're, we're going to be talking uh, about that later max y- yeah <laughs> that's something i like to do because i design i'm like well i've not, not designed ships i've just designed you know maybe less technical stuff but this is this is this has been really really interesting and leaky says that you guys rock and i've had absolute fun it's been so it's been so great. I, I know that our listeners would, would enjoy listening to this episode. It's like, well, we're throwing some science around, but you're having fun along the way. And you're also learning what is critical and what is true. Um, pretty much from the horse's mouth, from the people that actually are deeply involved in this. And it's been an honor. Um, it's been an absolute honor to, um, to host you guys and have you talk about you know, all this cool stuff. Um, Nikki's so excited. I'm sure if she, if she, uh, you know, had her camera on, she'd probably be clapping for you right now. But um, I guess I'll do that on her behalf. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks, um, and I hope we, we get to do this sometime, probably in, in the next couple of months or a year to see some of the progress that you've also, that you've made and um, to keep our listeners, um, you know, bit bit more in the loop, and and I I look forward to doing that with you if you if you don't mind. Um, Excellent. Yeah, it's been Thank a lot of fun. So much. Um, and and we'd love to come back on another time and and give you that update on on where we got to, and where we're going. Absolutely, That's great. Looking looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Excellent. Great conversation. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> 
You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.